0: Let this fact sink in. Today, there are more borders in the world than ever before in human history. At the end of the Cold War, only 12 border walls stood around the globe. Today, that figure has risen to a literally towering 74 Dividing lines between states and nations have been fought over, of course, for millennia. But my next guest says borders are becoming increasingly volatile flashpoints because of the very way we conceive and operate them. James Crawford, Shetland-born writer, historian and presenter, known for his work charting Scotland's history and landscapes, is written and presented three series of the BBC doco Scotland from the Sky. James has also found time to write uh, several non-fiction works. His newie, The Edge of the Plain, James embarks on a very timely exploration of borders, exploring how our obsessions with parceling up our landscape began, and whether our current bordering system is fit for purpose. It's a great delight, James, that you can join us now from Edinburgh. Welcome to our little wireless program.
1: Very happy to to come on, thank you.
0: James, you've been obsessing about borders for decades, but uh, it was only in the last few years you've been writing about them. What happened?
1: Well, I, I, as you say, I have been obsessing about borders for a long time. And, you know, I was I was born in 1978, so I grew up with the Cold War. But as with anything that you experienced as a child, you have a very simplistic view of it. And one of the focuses of my attention, one of the things I was, I was really drawn to as a child, bizarre as it sounds, was the Berlin Wall, because it felt like this almost this dark fairy tale of a city divided in two, but also a world divided in two and this wall as a symbol of, of the division of the world into. and i remember very vividly when the wall came down in 1989 you know i remember i was 11 years old i remember watching it on the television you know seeing people dancing on the top of it and and you know there was that incredible infamous quote by the american political theorist francis fukuyama that this was the end of history a quote which I think Francis regrets and apparently is reminded about just about every day on on Twitter. But, you know, that idea that the fall of a wall and a border marked this fundamental end in something in in this long period, you know, I was really drawn to that. And actually a decade ago, I bought a piece of the wall on eBay. I was writing about it in in one of my books in Fallen Glory. I kind of wanted, sentimentally wanted to, to own a sort of literal Touchstone. I'm almost certain that this piece is a fake. I don't. I don't think that it actually is a real piece. But that in itself, I think, is very interesting because this was a border that is now been split apart, and you can find pieces of it in every single continent apart from Antarctica. You know, there's one slice of it, one section of it is the backdrop to a urinal in a Las Vegas casino. So the idea that you can you can hold a border in your hand like this. Um, but a fascinating part of the Berlin Wall was that everyone wanted, when people got pieces of it, they wanted the western side because that was the piece with all the graffiti on it. Whereas if you think about it, the eastern side was entirely featureless, was grey. And at the time that the wall came down, you had enterprising East Berliners, with this newfound access to the capitalist economy, spray-painting their side of the wall to make it seem more authentic. So it just feels it ties into this whole idea of of the strangeness of borders.
0: Well, your, your bit may be inauthentic, but let's now look at something which is of absolute perfect pedigree. Take me to the Brit Museum to uh, visit that strange bollard.
1: Yeah, so this is... Uh, it's... I talk about it in the book being the oldest border in the world, it's not, basically because we don't know what the oldest border in the world is, but what this is, this marker, is the oldest record of a border and a border dispute in history. It's about four and a half thousand years old. It comes from Mesopotamia, uh, what's now Iraq. Um, It was discovered sometime in the late 19th century and taken to the british museum and largely was left in storage until about 2018 when it was finally studied by experts and and this bollard was covered in writing it was covered in our earliest known form of writing sumerian cuneiform and when they translated it what they translated was a story of this border dispute between two city-states in mesopotamia lagash and umma and basically it's you know literally a story as old as time it was two territories fighting over where to draw the line between who owned what. Um, and they were fighting over effectively fighting over a field of barley that they they called the Gu Edina, uh, which translates as The Edge of the Plain, which gives the title for my book. And they fought over it for about 150 years, you know, going back and forward. And this pillar tells the story. Of course, it only tells the story from the perspective of, of Lagash. And it was set on the border line so it was Uh, and i understand this uh, is also the source
0: of that uh, ominous term no man's land
1: that's right so on in this inscription and i touched it with my own fingers you can find the first ever or the earliest that we know of example of this term no man's land and, you know, it was describing an exclusion zone that was to be set on one side of the border so that Uma couldn't come within a kilometre of Lagash's land of this borderline. But, you know, to touch that phrase on this crystalline piece of limestone and to think about what that phrase has has gone on to represent throughout history, particularly in the context, of course, of the First World War, there's something really charged about that. You know, that sense of, of how we've been fighting over space for so long and what the human cost of fighting over space has been.
0: I'm talking to James Crawford. The ancient Greeks seemed to think about borders more philosophically than physically.
1: Well, they, they did. I mean, if you look at sort of the, the development of the city-states in classical Greece, they were an urban centre with an agricultural hinterland. And, you know, that hinterland would go up to a point that they called the Escatia, the furthest limit. And beyond that, there was what they called Eremus Chora, which was no man's land. That phrase again, no man's land. And at that point, the border was a a dividing line between civilization and wilderness, not between one state and another state, but, but between this kind of this scary outer world which you know only heroes went into to prove their worth and it was roamed by dangerous capricious gods like artemis and dionysus and pan you know pan is where we get the word panic from Panicon. so this idea that beyond the borderline was was a scary world that would tear you apart in some way but over time, what happened is these city-states grew and they started to bump into other city-states. And then you have to develop a political philosophy around borders. And you know, Aristotle wrote very interestingly about this, saying that people, citizens, should always own territory both at the center and at the periphery, because they can't make rational political decisions without understanding, you know, not the implications of owning territory in different places.
0: I'd like you to tell me about the way Athenian boys were sent to spend two years walking along the borderline.
1: Yes, it was boys on the cusp of manhood. And so it was very much the case that they'd be sent to understand because they were going to become citizens. And it was only men who could become citizens in classical Greece. So it was boys, adolescents who were sent to these borderlines to spend their time walking the edge line of their territory so they understood as a citizen what, what they were owning and what they were representing and what was going to be their property. But it was it was a metaphorical thing because in that transition, the borderline was a space of transition to the ancient Greeks and it was a space of transition between boy and man. You know, So, so spending time on the borderline was about progressing into manhood. That's how heavily bordering became imprinted in in greek culture and society at that time
0: if we take a a huge leap forward from ancient greece to the present day it seems that the idea of having national borders following for example the course of a river or a mountain range isn't necessarily all that reliable
1: no it's 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 not you know and there there are some people suggest that that nations have always follow geographical boundaries you know that it's been mountain ranges it's been rivers the reality is that's just not it's just not true and of course they shift over time they're always shifting you know there's uh, if you think about the american border for instance you know there was a time when the american border the border of the united states was the mississippi river and there is no more capricious (laughs) river in the world that shifts back and forwards that floods that changes shape you know there's a fantastic example in uh, the border between austria and italy that, that i traveled to and i wanted to go there because the border there is drawn as the watershed and it's only been drawn as the watershed between these two countries since the end of the first world war you know it was it was territory that was effectively seized from the austro-hungarian empire by by italy's burgeoning fascist government under under mussolini um, so they took the watershed principle the idea that if rain falls on a mountain range and it goes the rain runs off to the north you're in austria if it runs off to the south you're you're in italy unfortunately when you're looking at this this range this alpine range the odstal alps between austria and italy it's largely glaciated and so it's very hard to find that borderline because it's constantly shifting because the ice is constantly re-sculpting the borderline i had no and idea
0: that this border between italy and austria moves every year
1: not only does it move every year it moves every day i think i think is the reality and, and you know both the governments of these two countries got so sick of having to redraw that line that it has become the first border ever in history to conceptualised in law as a moving border so wherever that glacier goes and wherever that watershed goes that's where the border goes and i think that's a really fascinating development and of course as you say because of climate change that border is moving faster and shrinking more than ever before so it becomes a metaphor for what is going to happen in the future because by the time the glacier that marks large stretches of that borderline disappears the whole world is going to look quite different.
0: I I like your story about uh, the three sturdy filing cabinets, which um, well hold the documentation about uh, Slovenia, Austria, Switzerland, France, and Italy.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, the idea that there's so many ways to represent a border, you know. So there's the markers, and I hiked up to three thousand meters in in the Austal Alps and 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 stood on this borderline um, In fact, my mobile phone texting me to tell me that i'd crossed into into austria so my 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 service provider knew that i'd crossed the border but then also there's the bureaucratic border you know there's the legal border and it's contained in these filing cabinets so there's so many different ways to represent what a border is which comes down to how you translate the story you tell about the border which lives in the filing cabinets to the physical reality which is this incredibly complex landscape of rock and ice
0: lnl on rn and i'm talking to author and historian james crawford about a truly remarkable book the edge of the Plain: our borders make and break our world where does our current system of bordering begin i guess with war
1: it does unsurprisingly, it begins it begins with war. I think what might surprise people is it's relatively new. You know, the system that we operate now is called the Westphalian system. It's only about 350, 375 years old, and it's the product of a peace treaty. It's the 1648 settlement of Westphalia, drawn up after three decades of religious war in Europe. You know, that schism in the church, the emergence of Protestantism, and and you know, a war that really devastated. Huge parts of continental Europe. So they needed they kind of, you know, they needed some way to stop this interminable war. And they came up with this treaty, uh, which in crude terms, the idea was that a monarch, had the right to have exclusive authority over particularly religion, but also government, taxation, law, and the military within a specific geographical area. So once you set that parameter, you have to say, well, what is the geographical area? And you have to start drawing borders. And not just a rough idea of where a border is. You have to very specifically map a borderline so you can understand what resources are contained within whichever territory. And that sets us on a race to draw borders. You know, and that then leads to the development of nationalism. You know, nations didn't exist before this point. So, so nations and nationalism are again only a few hundred years old. And
0: presumably people had to develop appropriate technology, the capacity to survey, for example.
1: That's right. You know, If you think about the history of mapping, maps were not particularly accurate up until the 17th, 18th century. You know and the developments you got with the enlightenment, you know, the the, the rationalization, the, the understanding of latitude and longitude allows you to start to portion up the earth very, very accurately. And that dovetails then with development of this of this new system, which allows us to map to scale down to the blade of grass or the individual rock where one territory ends and another starts
0: it's an irony isn't it that the settlement of westphalia created peace but as you point out set us on a collision course for the first and second world wars
1: yes i you know it, it did obviously there are so many causes of those wars but one of the fundamental ones has to be bordering because it's a it's a race for territory it's understanding that you can only rely on the resources that are within the lines that you have drawn. So a big driver of colonialism is attempting to extend those borders across the globe to try and bring more resources into your sphere of influence. So it is a big driver. And then, particularly in the case of the First World War, it's this kind of grotesque irony that almost the trenches became these surrogates for borders with no man's land in between. You know, and and a lot of that even harks back to, to ancient Greece, where they would fight wars over the border with a set number of people. It was those same adolescents that we talked about would end up fighting these wars. And, you know, the First World War was like that, except the number of youths that were sent to fight these wars was almost unending. You know, it was millions of people who ended up fighting these border wars.
0: I'd like to pause for a moment and quote you to you. A border is such a simple idea. Step across a line, whether you can see it or not, and you are somewhere else. The landscape may look exactly the same, one blade of grass to the next, but you are in another place. On one side of the border may be the promise of wealth, on the other, the certainty of poverty. And that allows me to segue to the thought that in a sense, these days, borders are not so much about separating nation from nation, but all too often rich from poor.
1: Yes, I I think that's the direction we've headed in. And you know, if you think about the development of that system of ordering that I talked about, at first it very much was about dividing nation from nation and making clear those lines of separation. But over time, you know, with the development of globalization, multinational corporations, all the webs of finance that connect our world, all the joint agreements between governments, borders largely are not doing that i mean i think the one exception we have at the moment is a border war between russia and ukraine but largely across the world what we're looking at when we're seeing the development of these border walls that we talked about all these walls that are emerging you know all across the world you know places like poland building a border wall up against belarus turkey building a border wall up against iran you know this isn't about Turkey and Iran, it's about people passing through these countries trying to get somewhere else. And that's very much what we're seeing in the development of bordering and border technology is an attempt to funnel the displaced around the world. You know, and the, the UNHCR said that for the first time in 2022, the number of forcibly displaced around the world had passed 100 million. And very much a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the, the physical changes to our landscapes are about managing those flows of people and largely stopping those flows of people
0: that uh, takes us to the uh, to the great wall the, the big beautiful wall of donald on the us mexican border i understand that uh, bizarrely there's been not one but two attempts to have fragments of trump's wall designated as a national monument of special cultural significance
1: Yes, I mean, it's very bizarre, isn't it? The, the first was a joke, or a provocation, or a work of conceptual art, however you want to see it, and that was by a, a Swiss artist called Christoph Buchel, and this was in 2017, when Donald Trump had set a series of eight prototypes for what he wanted the border wall to look like, right on the border, next to the city, of the Mexican city of Tijuana, looking over the actual border wall, and... Christoph was so struck by these. He, you know, he felt they they tied into kind of ideas of Americana. They reminded him of the Obelisk in two thousand and one, a space odyssey. But he also thought they were representations of of isolationism and xenophobia in America, and that they should be preserved as a piece of land art and as a memory of how America was taking a wrong turn in its in its uh, attitude towards immigration. Ultimately, those those prototypes were demolished, and this attempt to have them conceptualised as land art was unsuccessful. But then a few years later, in April 2021, you had a Republican congressional representative called Madison Cawthorn put forward a draft bill to Congress for designating 400 miles of border wall in California, Arizona, New Mexico as a national monument with permanent protection from alteration. And he called it the Donument Act, a conflation of Donald and, and Monument. And you know, the fact that you had on one side this this piece of satire mixing up against someone who was genuinely serious <laughs> about the idea that this was the symbol of America now, this kind of line of rusting steel. You know, it's it's a really sad fate for for a border. And
0: yet it does seem that despite the plethora of these walls and borders that we've been discussing that they've come to the end of their useful life.
1: Well, I think that's what we're seeing the evidence of certainly in the physical side of bordering. You know, we largely know that that these physical barriers don't work. They don't work in terms of stopping people moving, but they I think the reason they exist is to to show strength you know they're symbolic you know a lot of these border lines have become semi-symbolic spaces and a lot of the construction of border walls is about appealing to certain voter bases you know that sense of projecting strength on the frontier is a very big thing in american politics it's becoming a very big thing in british politics And anywhere where countries are leaning towards the right, you can see that there is a tendency towards construction of of border walls. At the same time, that is a symbol of how borders are not working, of how they're fragmenting and breaking apart and failing in many ways.
0: You are a very provocative guest, James, and it's been a great pleasure to have you on the programme. James Crawford, historian, broadcaster, author. His book, which we highly recommend, is The Edge of the Plain. How Borders Make and Break Our World. It's published by Canongate.
1: Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.